Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 45 of Sleep Talk, and the theme for this month's podcast is sharing a bed. We'll get into that later. Welcome, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So the theme is sharing a bed, and we're going to get into the fact that seems like an obvious point, but we often ignore it, that sleep's a shared experience. It's not something that we do alone. Even if we are sleeping alone, it's often something we think about, or sometimes there may be someone else or something else like a pet in the room, and we'll get into is it good, is it bad? Well, hopefully it's not just binary. (laughs) (laughs) What's been happening in the sleep world, Dave? Well, I've been doing some things for the Sleep Health Foundation for Channel 7 for the House of Wellness. And we've just recorded a story on parasomnias and sleepwalking, sleep talking, and um, we've recorded a case of someone who's got that. And then back in the studio, I'm discussing how these things occur. Hopefully, it'll come together as a really nice story. Exciting. That's, that's great. So what's the what's the show? Wellness something? Yeah, so the show's called House of Wellness, oh, okay. and it's on Channel 7. I have seen that, yeah. yeah. And Yeah, that's another yeah. third story I've done mm. for the Sleep Health Foundation on that. Uh, show we've done a story on sleep apnea where Stu Walker, the comedian who did the musical on oh, yeah. snoring, yes. was also featured. Oh, great! And then we've done another story on circadian rhythms and the uh, body clock. So yeah, we're getting oh, a fair bit of information about sleep out there. So the theme for this month is sharing a bed, and yes, Moira, I take your point. It's not really binary, you know, is it only good or bad? <laughs> like everything in life, there is some grey in between. Yeah, but it's a big topic though, isn't it? I mean, well, is it a big topic in terms of, do you think how widespread is it that people would complain or, or, or have an issue, have sensitivity to sleeping in a bed with someone or even in the room with, you know, with someone else? I don't know about sensitivity. I think it's a big topic in terms of many people share a bed. There's no doubt about it. Sharing a bed does have some impacts on sleep. Yeah, of course. Not always good, not always bad, yeah. but some impact. So yeah. it is something that has to be factored into yeah. the equation. No, I think it, and I think it's a big topic too. I was just making that big statement thing <laughs> that I think it is, but I wasn't sure whether or how widespread it is really, because I think you've got to remember we see a skewed sample. Yeah, but then if you think about too, so we've spoken on a previous podcast about we did some media stories about yeah. on this topic. Yeah. And they get a lot of interest. Yes, that's right. They and do. so be whether it's things in the online media yeah. where we, you know, people can measure response rates and engagement, it's mm. a lot of engagement, mm. uh, or whether it's, say, radio, where you get a lot of feedback in terms of talkback calls. Yeah. So it is a definitely a mm. topic that people are cued into. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the whole like sleeping together uh, is a euphemism for, you know, having sexual intercourse. It says, oh, I slept, I slept with her. When I was a kid, I remember thinking, oh, what's that? What's, why is it so taboo that someone slept with someone? <laughs> but that was the, it's a code really, isn't it? That yeah. someone, well, especially growing up, that was what the language, it's probably a different language now, but people might say, oh, someone slept with someone, but it's not around the sleep, is it? But sharing the, so there's an expectation or an assumption that you do share a bed with someone um, when you're in an intimate you know, relationship. But I think it's really important to have this discussion um, worldwide that not everyone can cope with that. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that there's a problem within the relationship. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we think about, you know, as a much broader sense is co-sleeping, sharing a bed with someone, is it good? Well, if you think in a very broad sense, history suggests yes, because humans have co-slept for 
a long yeah. period of time. Yeah, whole families are in the same room. But and from- to, to quote back at you, some Sleep Health Foundation research, is it bad for sleep? So the work that Bob Adams was the first author on recently showed that in Australia, one in seven adults, so 14%, reported that a partner's sleep problem had a moderate or significant effect on the couple's relationship, mm-hmm. not just on sleep, mm-hmm. but relationship, and that 30% of respondents lost sleep due to the partner's sleep problem. Yeah, that's significant, isn't it? It is. And you and I know in that skewed sample we see that sometimes it's a trigger for people to come and seek help for sleep problems once they get into a phase of life where co-sleeping becomes more common. Mm. They've been able to sleep mm. okay when yes. it's just them. Yeah, they've coped better. They've coped better, yeah. but now there's a regular partner and it's been the thing that yeah. just tips them yeah, over that's the edge. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's not uncommon presentation, is it? Especially a yeah a young person in their twenties, perhaps that they they are just starting to regularly uh, sleep with someone else, and it's very upsetting for them. They 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 like the idea when they're not having to be with the partner because it makes their sleep better, but it puts a lot of pressure on the relationship, saying, "Oh no, don't come over tonight. I don't want to see you." Because it's all sorts of mixed messages there around really uh, how compatible they might be, and so it's yeah, it's worth worth discussing this. So I know that you've been doing a bit of research in this area, Dave, and building up to thinking about this podcast recording today. Tell me a bit about the history of co-sleeping. So as human beings, we you know, are largely social beings. And you know, think of that as that were, was tribes or sort of bigger groups. So you had the you know extended family group or extended tribal group sleeping in shelter or sleeping in caves. And so that co-sleeping wasn't just two people in one bed. It was a whole tribe yeah. of people yeah. and the animals that they kept. Yeah. Everyone's all together. Yeah, for around. safety, for warmth, for a variety of reasons, I presume. Yeah, exactly. So everyone's clustered around the fire together and there is that everyone's making different noises. Some people are up, some people are asleep. There's a good safety aspect to that because if someone's always awake, there's someone to tend to the fire. Yeah. And so yeah. sleep's always throughout history been this shared experience. Yeah, And then it was really... In the Victorian times with, you know, as hygiene became this thing, you know, people discovered bacteria and they were putting in sewerage systems in cities like London and, you know, it was everything then had to be clean in sort of Victorian times mm-hmm. was when this concept of two people in a bed together, you may catch disease from the breath of your co-sleeper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah. don't dare, you know, if you can so- possibly avoid it, don't have someone breathe on you during <laughs> sleep or they will infect you with some illness. Mm -hmm. And so that was where twin beds came in. And you can see that Mm. sort of literature of the twin beds. Mm -hmm. And that really persisted through until the the 1950s or so. And then that was the the baby boomers. And that you can see then are going back into a co-sleeping environment. You know, in my own personal life, I remember my grandparents had twin beds. Ah, That was their sleeping arrangement. I think the same. I can't remember now. Whereas my parents never had twin beds. Yeah. And it was just that generational change yeah. mm-hmm. in how people conceptualise or an expectation mm-hmm. around co-sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it's really that been that only period in history of not co-sleeping has been from that early Victorian times through till about the 1950s, whereas the rest of human history mm-hmm. has been co-sleeping. People, animals, everyone in together. All in, yeah. But then you fast forward to 2019 and it's the don't mess with my perfect sleep environment And so, you know, it's twin master suites. You know, I need my sleep cave, my perfect sleep sanctuary. Those fantastic mattresses, very expensive ones where the one side's different to the other. Right. Mm. So we're evolving 
chasing perfect sleep, starting to move away from co-sleeping. And it's uh, it can be distressing because it, because the co-sleeping can be quite symbolic and oh, it's it's really close. It's a it's a really nice close tie, you know. Whether it's you know child child with parents that kind of co-sleeping, or the or the you know the partners just being to I know um, twins, or, or you know twin siblings share like, like to share a bed, certainly share a room for a long time and have that that closeness. So it is it's a bit of, it is challenging when someone one of the party at least usually. Oh my my experience has always been just one of the party or one of the couple has it one's absolutely fine with the sleeping arrangement together but one is finding it difficult and challenging so then i guess that's where you delve into what various theories are abound around that and oh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll come back to that soft fluffy psychology stuff Moira. <laughs> so, so let me let me let me make the scientific case for why it's irrational psychology to, is scientific <laughs> to, to go but sleep. do go on <laughs> So at face value, it's irrational to share a bed with somebody because biologically we're different beings. We've got different internal body clocks. So some people are early morning, some people are late night types. We have different enzymatic systems that determine how quickly we accumulate sleep debt and burn off that homeostatic sleep debt. So therefore, intrinsically, we'll have different sleep lengths and we all run at slightly different body clock temperatures. And so we'll have different temperature preferences. And so if you've got someone who wants to sleep at a different time for a different length of time at a different temperature, why on earth start to try to share a bed with them? Because it's intimate and it's cosy. (laughs) And partners can disturb sleep. So partners make noise. They snore. They move. They do things. They talk. And all of these things can impact on sleep data that I quoted you earlier, where from the Sleep Health Foundation research in Australia showing that 30% of people reported that they lost sleep due to their partner's sleep problems. And it's not just sharing a bed with a person. Some re- a really nice paper from the Mayo Proceedings looking at dogs showed that those who had a dog on the bed had reduced sleep quality. Yeah. Again, because the dog's that sort of partner that's there making the noise, making the moving. You know, I know Charlie, my 10-year-old dog, yeah, he has REM behaviour disorder and acts out his dreams and barks and Have moves. You and... Have you done an EEG on his fur? <laughs> no, he hasn't had an EEG, but I could tell you, he's got REM behaviour disorder, that, that's for sure. Yeah. So in the face of all of those things, it does seem irrational to try and sleep together. So Moira, <laughs> why, why should we be sleeping together? Oh, well, I'm not the fountain of knowledge with all of that stuff. I think that, I think why we sleep together is just because it's a, an expectation, I think, that certainly that from the 1950s, as you said, if, if the parental master bedroom was largely a, a double bed or queen bed, etc., it's just evolved and it's an expectation of when you are in a relationship with someone and want to spend as much time together as possible, that sleeping together overnight is a nice way of just spending time together, even though most of the time you're asleep. But, you know, people really enjoy that uh, waking up together, or you know, going off together, feeling that that comfort and that that attachment of someone being close by. But I, but speaking of the attachment of that, I notice in some of the research that they do allude to attachment theory as one of the underlying sort of mechanisms of why people, certain people, do have problems sharing a bed and co-sleeping with someone. Um, And I certainly didn't know much about attachment theory 
or attachment style that much. Like even though I'm a psychologist and I've you know done oodles of study, I think because I haven't spent a lot of time in the de- developmental psychology or in relationship type psychology like couples counselling and family therapy, etc. There's a lot more emphasis on attachment theory in those spaces. But nonetheless, I really enjoy. You know, I love like reading about it. So. Maybe I should just talk a little bit about attachment theory. Yeah, so give it, give us the background. Yeah. Are there some types of attachment yeah. that might then you know link to different sleep patterns? I think so. I mean, that's that's the that's what's talked about in some of the the papers. And we must emphasise though that it's it's it is just it's just theoretical, and it's sometimes it's very hard to look back on an adult's attachment style when they you might be thinking about a thirty something year old adult. There is no way of looking back with the retro sometimes there's no evidence or you know the memories are a bit scant about what obviously they were an, an infant so it's a bit spe- you know it's very speculative the two main authors that i've seen is mary ainsworth and john balby from about the 1950s through the 1970s or so they're the ones that seem to be have written most about this and obviously others after that have expanded upon it and they define attachment as well um balby says that it's a lasting psychological connectness connectedness between um human beings and uh, ainsworth herself said attachment is a deep and enduring emotional bond that connects one person to another across time and space so we get the feeling of um what it's all about and recently Researchers have, you know, as I said, they developed various ways of assessing patterns of attachment, particularly in children, and they've classified that there are four different types of attachment style. Uh, there's secure attachments, which is obviously the one you'd want, you know, that you want people to like babies to have and adults to have. The second type that's described is anxious ambivalent and then anxious avoidance or this other categorization of being disorganized slash disorientated with their attachment style. So I think that in some of the papers where they look at couples that are not sleeping well next to each other, like having some difficulty sharing the bed, that there is some speculation, for instance, that it might be to do with not having the secure attachment style. In your reading of I mean, the, so the paper that we will put in the show notes, the, the certain paper that we um, that we both had a read of, do you remember what was the actual um, attachment style that they were alluding to that was the, the problem? Yeah, so that paper's from Journal of Sleep Research last yeah. year. And as you've talked about, people who had higher attachment or more secure attachment slept better. Yeah. In essence, you think of that as a little more at ease, not that sense of insecurity and felt they slept better. And a predictor of less good sleep was low attachment or insecure attachment. I wonder if it's the anxious avoidant or anxious ambivalent. or the. They did, did look at those groups, but there wasn't as strong a signal in, in those groups. It didn't seem to dichotomize in quite the same way. Yeah. And the author's hypothesis was that a potential therapy or thing to sort of consider is that people with lower or more insecure attachment mm. with longer co-sleeping may actually help their attachment to become more secure. Yes. And so a reason to co-sleep, yep. spend more time yeah. co-sleeping with yeah. your partner, is to increase the strength of attachment, which in turn improves sleep quality, and that improvement persists even if your partner's then not there. Well, in my reading, because I thought, oh, this is really interesting, I you know, I must refresh my memory of, you know, of the whole theory around attachment. And it, they kept coming up, like the different papers I was reading or um, just sort of scanning the, the research and the what's written about it. They kept talking about this 
way, an assessment tool or a method called the strain situation test mm-hmm. where they would get kids. It's mostly infants. Like my understanding, I'm going to have to stress I'm not an expert in this area, but it was for infants that are around about between nine to 18 months of age. And they'd look at them and get them into some kind of setting and they'd observe the child playing for 20 minutes or so while they had a stream of caregivers or strangers like enter and leave the room over this 20-minute period in a range of different scenarios. And what they were really ultimately looking for, the two aspects of the child's behaviour that were observed in this strange situation test is the amount of exploration, so, for example, playing with new toys or just you know looking around the room that the child engages in throughout this 20-minute period, and the child's reactions to the departure and the return of its caregiver. So they were the two sort of main things that they look at to have this kind of assessment, I guess, of what, and they have some kind of methodology for categorising the type of attachment style, who has you know, a secure attachment or an insecure attachment. In, in our own clinical practice in insomnia, you can certainly conceptualise how that's going to be relevant. So someone with a secure sense of attachment is okay, you know, if they're on their own, or okay if there's uncertainty, yeah, they're probably going to sleep better because mm-hmm. there's less of that vigilance, less of that vulnerability yep. that's one of the drivers for not sleeping well. Yeah, and I think it's okay to often encouraging people to be uh, adults, that is, like to be a bit more psychological, uh, psychologically flexible and, and agile and being able to be a bit more adaptive to situations and not – so I think that yeah, – I think the security in that helps, helps one be a bit more um, – you know, flexible, agile in their thinking. And I guess it's a little bit connected a little bit to resilience too, to just to know that, look, uh, a temporary situation, for instance, like being in a, you know, a strange bed or in someone else, you know, having just, you know, unexpectedly bunker down somewhere else for the night, that that's okay, that they're secure in knowing that it's a temporary thing, it'll be fine tomorrow, not to have too many expectations of it and not get too caught up in a, in a sort of a negative dialogue around that. Just to counter, I am going to now present some science about why it is good to sleep together or to Ooh, co-share. So, right. yeah, so I know I was dissing and <laughs> focusing on the it's irrational. Saying ira- it was irrational. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there's a, actually some really interesting studies. So not looking at attachment theory, but I really like that paper we've been talking about in trying to think mechanistically about what might be facilitating it. But a smaller study of young German couples, so these were mean age of 24 who'd been co-sleeping and a couple for six months or more, with PSG data, looked at their sleep length, sleep quality when they were co-sleeping versus when they were sleeping apart. And the difference in total sleep time in terms of how much longer they slept, so people's self-report was 53 minutes longer per night when they were co-sleeping, and the sleep study showed 33 minutes longer per night when they were co-sleeping. Which is pretty significant. Right. So that's a bigger effect. Yeah. In fact, about 50% bigger effect than a sleeping pill. I was going to so, say, yeah, I thought so. So sleeping in this mm. sample, sleeping with a partner that you had been with for six months or more that you're in a stable relationship with had more than one and a half times the effect of taking a sleeping pill on wow. improving sleep quality. And sleep efficiency improved from 75% to 84%. Interestingly, they had the same number of awakenings, but the self-report of sleep quality was that sleep was much more, much better, and they were more satisfied mm, with sleep. Okay, so that and those so, sort of subjective feelings right. were, were the the main. Although, yeah, we had these objective markers, obviously, of the sleep length, but the subjective stuff was yeah, and the subjective stuff was actually even more mm, than the objective mm, data, mm. which just tells you, yeah, there is that 
innate sense of comfort, sense of reassurance when there's the partner there. And that same study I talked about in Mayo Proceedings about dogs on the bed, showing sleep worse if dogs are on the bed, actually showed that people sleep better if a dog was in the room but not on the bed. Yeah, I was going to say, without that physical disturbance or yeah, jumping so you, up and so down. You have or, the yeah. reassurance, the mm. safety, mm. the comfort of your canine companion, yeah. but just not on the bed, yeah. d- disturbing yeah. you and actually improves sleep. That's interesting because I think, I mean, it's another story really about pets often having to maybe be let out for the toilet or things like that. You know, they get a bit fussy and they wake people in that way that they move around the room as well. Yeah, they can. But that leads into something else you alluded to a bit. Are we getting too precious about sleep? Are we sacrificing the, you know, I've got a that irrational thing, like sleep has to be perfect, it's irrational to sleep with someone, and losing track of the benefits of the attachment and yeah. the social aspects of co-sleeping? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I don't know. I think that I think there is a definitely more and more striving for but more of a, a perfect sleep and more likelihood of being dissatisfied with their sleep, thinking that it's abnormal when it probably in fact is fairly normal and weighing up a, a bit of a cost-benefit ratio sometimes of whether, say, with animals or a partner or a child or whatever in the bed room or in the bed, there is a cost-benefit cost ratio weighing up their benefits or the drawbacks of that. And I think I would encourage us all to start or to continue to just allow sleep to be what it's going to be. Like we've got these underlying physiological mechanisms that are working or trying to do their job and sometimes they get they can get disrupted by the emotion and the cognition that are therefore, you know, aff- affecting or delaying the onset or the maintenance of sleep. Certainly people who might have come to see any of us, you know, clinically for, you know, like I can't really sleep well, with my partner in the bed, I sleep really well on the nights that he or she's not there. Sometimes it's just around reassurance that, well, let's just go with that at the moment if that's if that's the case. Look at what the cost-benefit ratio is of, of being together or not. You can, we can work, And certainly it can be great success of working on getting people back into the room. And the same principles of just usual CBTI, et cetera, around and it's ignoring that the partners they're just around sleep in general like letting go of rigid thinking letting go of too many behavioral things that are just that are spoiling the broth yeah and good sleep in in a partnership requires compromise yes (laughs) like everything else about a partnership and i've often find people have made a number of compromises in other domains of life if they come into relationship with their own sleep issues not sleeping well Mm. that's a non-negotiable area and it's one of the areas they don't compromise and it leads to that rigidity and the you know don't mess with my yeah well because i think it's just so there is so much fear i mean it's just it's a dreadful it's reality for people um, when they can feel so debilitated by poor sleep and if they associate that or attribute that to the not that the other person of course there's a it becomes uh, a thing they want to avoid because when you've got a, a fear of something, of course, the natural thing to do is to avo- want to avoid that and it becomes a really big thing. It's really hard to have someone like me saying, hey, you know, just sit with the, just you know, trying to not, you know, put too much emphasis on it, all the stuff that we, we, we do do. It's, it's a very hard pill to swallow for people, but it, it does take time, like a process over several sessions of just exploring that. And, and I think ultimately just coming to terms with it for them, what, what it means for them. Is it worth it, you know, sleeping together? Perhaps they can just go back to the twin beds. Perhaps they can just suck it up that the times they do sleep together might be just a bit of a, an ordinary night. 
but lying there and being comfortable about that is a lot better than fretting about it. You'll feel a lot better the next day and, and probably will just drop off to sleep anyway. Just just accepting that you might have a sleepless night, you're probably more likely to get sleep. So if people are looking for more information, uh, both Maura and I have done some things in the media about this topic. There's a Triple J interview that I'll put the link to and uh, Maura has written an article online that I'll also put a link to. So Moira, what's your clinical tip for this month? I probably already went over it a bit too prematurely just earlier now in our discussion, but it's really around just reminding all of us as clinicians, we're supporting someone who is saying they're having a lot of difficulty with sleeping, with you know sharing a bed with someone and sleeping with a partner, to just just reassure them that it's not uncommon. It can it's 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 a reasonably common thing that occurs in society. And to, and just to work together collaboratively to set some goals around really what does it mean to, to sleep apart, what does it mean to sleep together, and try to not be too precious about uh, being perfect with your sleep across the week. You can actually we can we can we can cop a few a couple of bad nights, and if it and and uh, and and think about the compromise that might be required. Of, uh, of someone just saying, look, I do need to sleep apart just for a couple of nights a week or whatever it looks like. It's going to be different shapes and forms for different people. Looking for perfectionistic tendencies would be important as a clinician to try and encourage people to just be a, a bit more accepting of poor sleep. Dave, what's your pick of the month? So my pick of the month is a book and it's one of the books that I was reading as part of the background research for this episode, Warm and Snug. The History of the Bed by Lawrence Wright and gives a really nice history, not so much actually about the psychological stuff of sharing a bed, but actually the physical things of different types of beds across oh, ages. Okay. Whether they were firm or, or, or they were just like slats or springs or... Exactly. And, and my take home after reading you know, quite a long book yeah. about the history of the bed <laughs> is that it's really largely fashion. Is really? what's driven like everything else. Like everything else yeah. is driven sort of beds yeah. as well, how they know, what they look like, what they throughout yeah. ages. And you know, I, I think back to the research we spoke about in a previous episode with um, Andrew Beale about his work in Mozambique, where people slept on the ground or in yeah. traditional beds and didn't yeah. sleep that much worse than people with mattresses. And yet here we are with yes. you know, must have the five thousand yes. dollar mattress and a certain style of bed to be able to sleep well. So what about for you, Moira? Well, my pick of the month really is not a book, not a website, not a paper, but it's probably just a, a plug really. It's for the Pajama Run that is a, a fundraiser and awareness raiser for Monash Health that's going to be held the last Sunday in October. I'm pretty sure it's the 27th. And it's a fun run that's going to be held in Melbourne. You can either do a, a 9.6, a 6.4 or a 3.2 kilometre run slash or walk depending on you know your preference and fitness and it's all and it's in pajamas so it's a it's a first of its kind really here um, certainly in melbourne probably in australia and we really want to get behind it and and 
uh, give it a bit, um, so I'm giving it a plug here and we'll um, put a link to it in our show notes. So am I going to see you then? <laughs> I'm certainly going to be there in my pyjamas. There have to be a bit of a strict code, I think, around what pyjamas, <laughs> not too skimpy or, uh, you know, it's got a bit of a thing. I don't know. I haven't read the fine print. Unfortunately, I've just done my uh, hammy again. A different. I've had some hamstring issues in the past. So I'm pretty sure I'll be doing the walk, unfortunately. I would have liked to have been doing the run. So thanks for listening to this episode. So look out in future episodes uh, for topics like cannabinoids and sleep. Someone also talked to me recently about how pain and sleep would be a really good episode. So you oh, know, I think I think that's a topic we're going to need to explore and yes. a big topic. So probably yes. break it into smaller Can't chunks. We haven't done that yet. I know. Yes. And you know, because of my maths bias and a bit of a geeky bias, you know, I still want to do big data and sleep. Mm. There's a couple of really interesting mm. papers coming out about sort of crunching big data sets and. Insights yep. Excellent. into sleep. And we're in the throes of preparing for Sleep Down Under, the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific yeah, meeting. soon. I've signed up for your breakfast session, Moira. I did, did that yesterday. So well, Thank you. It's $40. Well spent, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I hope too. <laughs> we better make it good. So thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, send us any suggestions or any questions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And send us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe via any podcast app. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye for now. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.